Welcome to Essie's Hour of Love, which is a podcast where we interview a different guest every two weeks about their personal experience with love. And I hesitated when I said every two weeks because we actually missed last week. Um, there was a big storm in the city and a lot was going on and we just decided to take the week just to make sure that this podcast was as best as it possibly can, but that won't generally happen. Normally it will come out every two weeks. So we're up to episode 37 and our special guest is Joanna Fang. She is an Emmy award winning sound editor. I've never met anyone that's even like been to the Emmys, let alone won an Emmy. Uh, She's also Taiwanese-American and a transgender female. And I have a few, not caveats, but um, some info that could help you sort of listen to the episode. She speaks a lot about Foley artistry, which which generally means sound editing. And it's called Foley because of Jack Foley, who apparently was this incredible sound editor. And his last name sort of became the lingo of how people spoke about it in the industry. And it's like... You know, when a door slams in the movie, they recreate that sound in post-editing and post-production and also like chewing gum in your mouth. Like a lot of these rich sounds that we hear on films is created afterwards um, by people in a room with different like materials recreating sounds. So that's what she does and she's extremely good at it. Uh, we also, she did a lot of work with, um, on Master of None and we talk about, we talk about that because there's a a bit of controversy going on around Master of None at the moment, especially because of the article that came out in Babe. And I'm just going to read you the title of the article. It's called, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari's. It turned into the worst night of my life. And Aziz wrote and acted in, um, Master of None. I would recommend maybe reading the article maybe before you listen or you maybe have already uh, read it. I've also put a link on our website just in case you can't find it. It just talks, it really delves into the grey area of uh, this moment that we're having um, in the world around sexual harassment and what truly categorises under that title it's very blurry. It's very uncomfortable. I get quite uncomfortable talking about it because uh, I don't have all the answers. Uh, but, um, you know, she worked on Master of None, a fantastic show. She also worked on this incredible episode of Master of None that also won an Emmy, I think, last year or the year before. It's in season two. It's called Thanksgiving and it's episode eight. And I've also put a link on the website if you want to watch the specific scene we we get very passionate about on the um on the podcast i also have a bit of a personal thing i want to say a mentor of mine around two weeks ago passed away and i was helping him with a big project he was working on and the second last time i saw him we we had like a four-hour session of strategizing how to brand this new project of his and right at the end, he's like, and how's the podcast going? I was like, it's going really well. I was like, I just love it. Uh, I'm just going through, trying to find 
what balance the listeners need to know about me, the host, and what ultimately it's about the guest. Um, but I know that you kind of fall in love with the podcast a lot of the time because you develop a relationship with the host. And he said that why he's like, do you do an intro? I'm like, yes. And it's weird. I feel like I'm just talking to a machine unless Grace is with me, then at least, you know, I'm chatting with someone. Uh, and he goes, well, why don't you start sharing what you personally learned from that episode? And, and maybe that's just a way that you can share a little bit of you, um, but not too much and just find that balance. So Andrew, I'm going to take your advice and, um, Thank you for your advice. I With this episode, I actually kind of got a little bit away from me. Um, there was a lot of rich um, content that we talked about and there was times, especially she mentions that she's recently been through a heartbreak and I didn't really push on that. And also I'm talking to someone that has experienced being a man and a woman in this world and there's not that many people can talk about that experience and we, we touch on it, but... We don't really delve into it and um, I kind of woke up to it probably three quarters of the way through the episode and then went, you know what, I may have to let this go a little bit because um, it would change the whole, uh, I missed it, I kind of missed the opportunity. So from this episode I actually more just learned, um, took away from it by just being a little bit more prepared and and looking at the guest from a little bit of a higher level and go, what truly are the rich um, things that we can talk about that would really spur for a unique conversation? And um, I, I feel like we're getting better, but as we get a bit better, I'm seeing like more and more possibilities and I'm like, oh, so the pressure's getting a little bit harder. So that's what I, that's what I sort of came out of this episode on a personal note. But enough about that. I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. It starts up. We it, it actually went for an hour and forty five minutes, and we've cut it down to an hour. So we're we're entering the um the conversation right at this moment where I ask about doing sound editing for sex scenes because you know that as seems like a tricky business. So I hope you enjoy. And Grace um co-hosts this one uh, with with us. So there's three voices. Bye guys. Love it. Do you, I mean, I feel like I would say that they, they choose to not include a lot of sounds that normally would be included in that. Right. (laughs) I I actually don't know, but I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Like, I don't mean this in a necessarily like a gross way, but there's normally like a lot of music comes in. Right, right. And like, I mean, yeah. Do you, do you have to tackle those? Oh, all the time. Like Master of None has tons of sex. You know, the, the very first... I mean, okay, I don't know if we want to talk about Aziz Ansari's show in this well, day and age. Well, I actually wanted to, I think we should, if yeah. you don't, if you Oh, yeah, sure, to... I can use a Master of None example. Um, so Master of None, like, the very first episode, of the very first scene of the very first episode, um, you know, the very first shot, it's like a dolly-in shot of, of, of him and, 
and uh, Rachel having sex in the dark. And so the, the whole show has so many instances of, of, of um, you know, physical intimacy, romance. Obviously, there's a whole element of that, which now in retrospect is like kind of... Anyways, um, talk about we'll, talk about we'll talk about that about in a second, that, but... but we might have to edit my comments just because oh, I'm oh. not no, at liberty. No, no, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, but you know, for a show like Master None or High Maintenance, or a movie like Light Between Oceans, where there's a lot of intimate and there's more expressiveness in the sex than purely reproduction or pleasure, mm-hmm. right? So in Master None, it's used to comedic effect. In uh, shows like High Maintenance or otherwise, there's like a very jarring raw reality to it. So in some ways, it's like, what is the purpose of this sex scene? And then bring that. Yes. Then, yeah. then is it the, dramatic? Is yeah. It yeah. Comedic? Is it... Yeah. Like, what do we need the listener to, or the viewer, to gain from this? And it, yeah. yeah. So which th- makes a lot of sense. Not like, let's make the most realistic sex yeah. scene. Right, 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 right. Because we... <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't think people the... watch the movies anymore. <laughs> yeah, if it was truly realistic. And that's the funny thing. They don't even film even the act of writing a sex scene, typically when it's written they tend to editorialize just right there in the screenplay or in the way it's shot. You know what I mean? All of us know what it's like to like, like lean back, walk away, use the bathroom, come back, fall asleep, sweat. Can't fall asleep because there's too much sweat. Like there's all those complexities to sex that are never reflected in the films. So we don't have to worry about those. But when they are reflected, obviously we have to take into account like narrative and performative and dramatic elements. Um, For example, in Light Between Oceans, we had this sex scene where um, I got to do all the skin and hand pats for it. And it's a really tough scene because Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander are this couple living uh, in an, an island, an, uh, oh, island yeah. all by themselves. Yeah. In Ireland? Is it like set? Which... Uh, it, it's um, Janus. Yeah. Um, and Janus. Um, <laughs> I don't know how it's pronounced, uh, but they're living off a really remote island and they're trying to start a family. And the first time they, they make love, um, a few months later, she miscarriages. Yeah. And so it's a really emotional scene. It's really, really messes them up. It really destroys the heart of the family they're trying to make. And so they decide to try it again. And that sex scene, when they try to they try it again, is really fascinating. Because on one hand, they know this is something they both want. But there's definitely like a, a sense of like of pain, of discomfort, of this intimate, intimate lovingness. But at the same time, this pain, this yeah. pain that's a inside them. A of, of what has happened, but also yeah. like this pressure that... Of it to work. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because we're just doing skin sounds and hand pats for like when he's holding her and stuff like that. And it was funny because I did a pass of it. Les and Ryan were like, okay, that was right. That was technically right. But remember all the context leading up into and getting out of this because he's grabbing her not forcefully because he's trying to like force her to be into it, but he's grabbing her firmly mm-hmm. and trying to comfort her. So it was like, Whoa, and you'd be surprised how that changes that sound. Like, we compared the files after I got that note. I did it again, but this time with that in mind. Comparing the files, it's like, that's a completely different... different. Even if it's the rustle of people's clothing, it's like the performing the emotionality into the scene just changes the very nature of the sound. What's incredible to me, though, is, like, how much then do you guys work with the director? It depends. On a big film like Light Between Oceans, we were able to go to the Roxy Hotel in Tribeca and watch a really extensive uh, t- a test first screening. Cut. Yeah, okay, first yeah. cut. And we also were involved before the film was was still in the rough edit phases. You know, Derek was trying to figure out whether or not he could include an entire scene in the movie, so we did the whole scene for him, and and then we went to premix with it. Because um, there must be a decision also if if it if it really 
there must be a moment when they're like, this is a great scene. It would be 100% better once the sound edit yes. comes in. And then you get it back and you're like, actually, it, it didn't quite it work. It didn't quite go to that level right. of, that I was hoping for. Mm. So do we include it on? Wow, it's so fascinating. It's so been, many levels. It's a lot of levels. It's a lot of money too, because yeah. it's like reshooting an entire scene can be really time extensive. But um, no, I mean, we have different layers of, of hierarchies above us. So... Mm. Obviously, Derek will pass his notes to his supervising sound editor, um, and then his super the supervising sound editor will then pass notes to us. So you know we're indirectly talking to director, but we've noticed that it's kind of weird. Back back in the eighties and nineties, when sound facilities had everyone under one roof yeah. before these things were parsed out, um, those type, those types of conversations would happen on the daily. Yeah, you yeah, know, the, you just like walk past. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, because everything's parsed out, the mix is happening in Manhattan, but the Foley's being shot in Peekskill, and the dialogue editor's working from home in Greenpoint, because all these things are being are separated, and the conversations are happening via email, via text message, via phone calls, um, we noticed that for a little bit, there was a little moment where directors were not so interested in Foley that they needed to call us. It was something that could be communicated through the existing power structure mm. of the crew. But recently we've realized because we're so accessible as this satellite Foley facility, we're getting emails from directors and producers like directly to us, not CC'd with anybody else, but hey, just a reminder, this creature needs to break branches or hey, just a reminder, you know, like it'd be great if we got these cigarette burns really, you know, it's fascinating because I think the more Foley has become um, understood by general populace, the more the directors are realizing that like, wow, that has a huge... It brings it to a new level. It heightens everything. If yeah. It's done well and done right. Exactly. Would you also say, like, I would, you know, shows like um, Stranger Things and, like, where they're also taking you back to an old behavior that we might not necessarily... Like, even the smoking. Like, most of us don't smoke anymore. Right, but, right. But back in that time, everyone did. So the sounds mean more to us now. Oh, because absolutely. we're not... We're not used to used to that, and so it brings it to you'd be like, yeah, they've they have taken me back yeah. thirty yeah. years or whatever all the time, and sometimes my um, sometimes my naivete and my lack of life experience shows, and I, I have to defer to my boss and my chief engineer to help me figure out what things were like back then. Yeah, you know, so I don't know what life was like in the fifties, yeah, or the sixties or the seventies or anything. Yeah, <laughs> and so the cool thing is nowadays with the internet and with um digital, I mean, from this point onwards, from like the 90s onwards where digital audio has become very accessible and somewhat affordable, um, we're starting to be able to actually catalog sounds. Mm -hmm. And I tell people the biggest, the biggest tool you have is actually your iPhone. You know, um, we're working on this movie Nerve and, you know, I was talking to my boss about Snapchat and Instagram and, you know, these like Isn't new apps. That, um, yeah, at, at a, uh... Dave Franco. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so the, the, the plot revolves around how there's this... It's like a game. Yeah. It's like yeah. a truth or dare, but like taken to the extreme Hunger Games level. Um, and uh, basically everyone's using their phone and they're always tapping it. Camera sometimes disappears behind the phone of the iPhone. So I was talking to my boss and the supervising sound editor, uh, Leslie Schatz, he wanted to get the sound of the wind on the microphone when the camera's moving around. And so Leslie had, uh, Leslie asked if me and my Holy Mixer Nick were comfortable just doing a pass of just cell phone movement. And we're like, yeah, obviously it was like so contemporary to us, you know, like we're on Instagram, we're yeah. on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. I tell people for me, the sound of freedom for people for, at least from my perspective is the sound of <sighs> like wind hitting the microphone on the iPhone. 
because oh, they've just come out of the subway. Or yeah. They're like or they're out in like, the bush. Or yeah. like, I love it yeah. how mine's the suck. <laughs> no, yeah. to Brooklyn. But that's how I feel when I walk up the stairs from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And yeah. I can feel that it's just like less people. And I'm like, freedom. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ice, like, you know, I have friends who go to Iceland for vacation and they're, they're on the top of a mountain. And you're not hearing anything except for the wind destroying the microphone. And so, uh, you know, the anthropology of what we consider reality and sound changes with every te- yeah. generation of technology. Nowadays we know like handshakes do not make sound like confirmed handshakes don't make sound. That's a film, you know, conceit that we've built to try to communicate intimacy or a moment between two people. So if I shook, you know, Essie's hand, you could barely hear that. But if you shook hands in a movie, if you guys want to shake hands. Oh yeah. Let's uh, do it. Oh, oh yeah. you're going to do this. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. You know, but unless it's like a, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's like, so like so even a subtle, small handshake what will about, do the sound for. I must be, I don't mean to like, but what about kissing sounds? Oh, um, it's funny cause my boss kisses differently than I do. Um, my boss is like, you know, he's, he's in his fifties, he's bulking, huge, ripped, very strong. His kisses kind of reflect how he is like, you know, whereas my kisses tend to be a little more feminine. Yeah. And so it's really funny cause we were doing a movie and we had three of the most beautiful people on the face of the planet. We had Salma Hayek, Pierce Brosnan and Jessica Alba. And they're in this love triangle and we had to do all the kissing sounds. So we we're doing a scene. So Les is going to take all Pierce Brosnan's kissing yeah. sounds. And I was going to take all of Jessica Alba's kissing sounds. So this, you know, 50 year old, old Jewish guy. And this like tiny Asian, this, you know, this Asian girl yeah. watching a screen, kissing our hands and <laughs> sink. It, it was very, very strange and surreal, but you know, the sounds of love are so much of it. It's just intimacy and cloth movement. So much of it is, you know, tender kisses versus, you yeah. know, like more, more lusty kisses, you know, it's gender, you know, it's, but that sort of sloppy one you did there as well, but, but that would communicate a, a bad kiss to me. Yeah, you know? right. So it's like, if it's a bad kiss. It's like, it, the, yeah, yeah. there's a lot more mouth to like it. I feel like John Hughes films in the 80s, but they always <laughs> yeah. look such, so bad. <laughs> all bad kisses. All bad teenage kisses. kisses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, there's like so much to be communicated about the sound of love. Yeah, you I know? love that when you keep touching the fabric the, sound, I'm like, I do, I I'm my brain really is going to before. beautiful central moments yeah. in films by just the fabric. Yeah. Yeah. That was you I, hearing this? <laughs> you hearing this? We're rubbing our arms. <laughs> so let's go back to Master of None. Oh, okay, yeah. And I don't, I, I'm, I don't want to make you if you can't talk about what, it, no, but I here's no. how I'm gonna set it up. So I'm more linking it to the article that came out in Babe. Yeah. About the, um, if you haven't read it, it's an interesting article. I've actually spoken so much more about it before I actually read the article. And a week ago, I actually read the article. Mm-hmm. You hadn't read the article? No, I hadn't read the article because I felt like people, I got it. I, I mean, it sounded like, it sounded yeah. like an evening yeah, that nearly it. all of us have had. Um, and, and I guess because I still want to like Aziz, um, or I still want to enjoy his work or whatever. And I'm not even sure. I'm not sure how I feel about all this. But um, I was so grateful that he yeah. apologized in the end of the text message. So I sort of felt like I'd I had still think little... SNL like touched on this subject the best way possible. Where it's just the game of like, oh, can't careful. talk about it. Oh, yeah. careful, can't talk about but it. But I am really grateful for this 
article um, taking Aziz out and even taking the woman out who wrote it or whatever, but purely the conversations that have come up about it of just this grey area. Like we've got the um, Weinstein, Weinstein thing where it's like 100% pure and utter wrong. Like, you, you know, don't even try to tell me that this was, you know, you could justify this behaviour in any way. Boom. And then there's been other cases where it's very clear. And then this article comes out and you're like, yeah, this is a really great area. And I'm sure people see it much more black and some people see it much more white or whatever. But I'm really grateful for the conversations that have come yeah. out of it. Um, and just if you haven't read it, it's more like they he went on a date with a woman and um, they went back to his apartment. And it just got the signals were completely um, misunderstood or you could get however you want to read the article we don't know um but it you know that that there were points where i think she felt like she was sending very clear signals to be like she's very uncomfortable and even said it out loud and he didn't uh pick up on these or wasn't wasn't understanding where she was coming what she was trying to um put out there and she ended up you know crying in the car home and feeling pretty violated and texting him about it the next day and, and he ended up saying I totally missed that uh, read re missed the reading of what that was and, and I'm sorry anyway so you've worked on his work and I wondered just as a personal point from you did that affect how you like I'm sure like you must have been really proud of what you did like, and then that your, stuff comes out uh, oh, this is so difficult to talk about because clearly because it's such a gray area I think a lot of people are saying they're asking themselves well is season three going to happen is there going to be a third season of Master None is it going to be able to address these issues because it's actually hysterically enough the perfect show to address these issues. Well, he also yeah. started to address it actually at the end of season two. Yeah. Right. No, see, and this That's, is, yeah, definitely. This is. is what blew my mind. So season two was written, produced all before the Me Too movement. And it was funny because it already was talking about these uncomfortable realities about sexual harassment. And the, you know, the, one thing I've noticed about the discourse about dating, a lot of it comes down to gender and sexual roles, right? A lot of it comes down to a discourse on men's expectations, women's expectations. You have an entire series of books dedicated to exploring this. And um, one of the big things I realized, especially as someone who's transgender, who's seen, you know, both sides to a certain extent, mind you, I'm also Taiwanese American. There's all the baggage that comes with that. Yeah. Um, and I've mostly dated Caucasian women, so there's all the back that comes with that. But from from my understanding, you know, all these things eventually do evolve into, well, you know, you know, well, do our guys actually understanding these nonverbal cues? Are 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 they just are they understanding it but not trusting it because of our culture of masculinity? Um, yeah, all this really gray stuff, and the result is that I think a lot of the people involved on on the show and a lot of closer collaborators. We're, a lot of us are put in a really tough, tough situation where, you know, this is obviously someone who's paid the bills, someone who, who's elevated our platform, someone who's who's made it so that, you know, my favorite work I've ever done was the Thanksgiving episode oh, of Master. I'm so Mike. glad you Such said that. It's, yeah. it's one of my favorite pieces of work ever. And I thought the way, sorry, I don't mean to write no, no, mainly because I'm so passionate about <laughs> this episode. Just also that conversation that she has with her mother at the diner um, and about that she's, you know, a a black woman who is gay mm -hmm. um, and her mom has never quite, you know, uh, they've never really properly had a good conversation yeah. about it. And finally, you know, her mom expresses that, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, you have it hard enough. That scene was really important to me too, because 
as someone who's transgender and queer, you know, I remember when I came out to my mom and I, I was really lucky. I got to do a lot of the props on that episode and um, I got to do that scene. And it was something I was talking to my mixer about and I was telling him, we need to build the Foley sounds up until that moment of just stunned silence. Because that's what I remember the most is the silence. It's playing that space. It's that moment where, like that. You know, there's a moment of calmness, a moment of air. And, um, you know, so when we got to do that scene, you know, they're eating. There's also editing happening. So we're trying to cover gaps in editorial, but still give it a performance. So she's like, she's eating toast. She's kind of uncomfortable. It's a really quiet diner. You can hear like every single fork down. And so we're doing the whole scene. We're adding to it. And we're not just clinically listening to what was recorded on set and then putting a fork down. We're taking consideration that, you know, Denise is, you know, Denise is awkwardly trying to make her way into this conversation. Yeah. Her mom is just willy nilly eating, you know, and is, and then she just stops it's like a clatter. And so, and, but it's not a clatter that screams out to the world. Oh no, my daughter's gay. And said, it's like the clatter, like there's a nuance of like, she knows she always kind of knew, but it's like this moment of just like, you know, putting things down, like this weight coming off the shoulders or this disappointment emerging. This reality hitting. Yeah, exactly. And so we got to do that scene and it is by far the the single, it's so funny because everyone always asks me, oh, what's the coolest sound you've ever made? Is it like ripping people's heads off? Is it like oh. like machine guns? Is it like drug sounds? Like I'm like, no. is it a car crash? Is it all this like, like surprisingly, I call it hysterically masculine sound effects. And I always tell them, no, for me, those, the intimate character scenes, the ones that I truly pride myself on, on nailing and believing in. And so I got to do that scene and I got to reflect how I felt when I came out to my mom. And, you know, it was really weird because it's like this show has given me so many opportunities to reflect on modern contemporary life and issues. And the fact that they built up this subplot leading up to the end of season two yeah. with a very beautifully well done highly problematic relationship between him and his, and this, you know, uh, manic pasta dream girl, um, Francesca, you know, and also hearing the conversations about people arguing whether or not it's a good thing or it's a romantic thing or not. And with that final shot being them in bed, just not knowing if they're doing the right thing. Um, I think it sets itself up for a discussion and, you know, people always talk about how you reflect your life and your art and your art and your life. I feel like, you know, if you look at my Facebook profile on my about me, I wrote trans woman, Asian American or trans woman, Taiwanese American Foley artist sound bitch. You know what I mean? Like that's the, like, that's kind of my catchphrase for a yeah. lot of stuff. And I'm realizing that because I can present that to people, they know, okay, preferred pronouns, she, her, they know, oh, she's Taiwanese. They know all this stuff about me and they're building this idea of who I am and a myth about who I am. Um, I saw M butterfly recently on Broadway. It just ended. But the whole thesis of M. Butterfly is this idea that it uses oriental, uh, Orientalism to talk about it, but we do this for everybody. We build the myth of a person based on all these things we know about them. And then we f sometimes fall in love with the myth of the person. Mm -hmm. We fall in love with this, pl this platonic ideal of a person. And we start overlooking flaws or even absorbing flaws. And we become heartsick and become lonely and we become yearning. And the whole time we're avoiding the stark reality. You know, memories play, memories in our subconscious warp our world. Um, the, most, the most interesting example I can think of from that book I'm reading on subconsciousness is, you know, oh, I always joke about this in audio. If I gave you a, a microphone that was red and I gave you a microphone that was blue and I told you to describe the sound qualities of each microphone, 
chances are your average person will be like, well, the red one sounds hotter yeah. and sounds like it has like vitality. And the person, the blue one's like, oh, it has, it has smoothness. It's like very, yeah. very like calm and serene. And if I was like, yeah, but they're actually the same mic. They're just colored differently. It's your reaction that's changed. Um, I think people forget that we're doing that for everything. We're making these subconscious changes to reality and how we perceive reality. And that we do that to human beings. Mm. You know, if I took you to a fancy restaurant and it said like, like julienne carrots and i took you to like a chinese restaurant where it's like yeah chopped carrots yeah you know yeah. like like even if it's the exact same carrot even exact same dish served by the same cook you eat the julienne ones and it's just like oh this is like elegant and has like all these extra flavors you can taste the earthiness whereas the other one you're like yeah it's pretty good you know yeah. you just eat it uh, and that's the thing it's like we're so shaped by contextual ideas and um interesting though that's what you're doing with sound yeah Exactly what we're doing with sound. A lot of it's just smoke and mirrors. Yeah. A lot of it's just presenting an idea or a sound and contextualizing it and trying to give it these mythical qualities. Yeah. And um, in an interesting transition, you know, uh, I could I could talk about my philosophy about love as we discussed uh, on phone. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so basically it's interesting because I'm a freaking sound nerd. And the thing about having a bachelor's degree in film and sound is that, like, it changed, like, the whole training of it changed how I interact with the world, right? Life imitates art, art imitates life. I'm constantly trying to understand the conversation between the two. Um, in sound, we have this idea called, or this theorem called the fast Fourier theorem, FFT. Um, Fourier's theory was that basically you can describe every complex wave as, as a bunch of smaller waves adding and subtracting from one another. So if I gave you this beautiful violin, it's actually made up of thousands, millions of sine waves okay. combining and subtracting and creating this beautiful different like sound. Like pixels to an image, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly like pixels to image. Um, the thing about Fourier, though, is he, he added the time component, right? So over time, things change. And uh, his whole notion was that you can mathematically graph out, you know, um, depending on the complexity of what you're listening to, you can, or complexity of the thing you're observing, you can graph those things out as mathematical equations, adding a subtraction, you know, as calculus. Um, I think the way I look at human beings is that we're not just our flesh and blood, because obviously our flesh and blood changes every few years. You regenerate, right? Um, we're not just our actions, our day-to-day, -day, our routines. We're not just our subconscious thoughts. We're a combination of everything we do. We're this giant metatextual creature. And if I could... You know, the way we were able to break down a complex sound by thousands of individual sine waves, I believe you can break down the essence of a person in the thousands of individual actions and thoughts and information that they're, they're living in in the world, right? So that's my idea. Like, everyone talks about the human soul. I'm like, the human soul, whether it exists in the classical term or not, I use it as a way of describing this beautiful, complex, shifting nature of who we are. And it's just like a sound wave. Um... So my philosophy out love is that I'm looking for someone who kind of has this, who's on the same wavelength yeah. as me, someone who's, who's been shaped in similar ways, who's harmonically inclined to want to move along with me as these like sounds. You know, if, if, if I think of myself, Joanna Fang, as this ever-changing wave of sound, I want someone in my life who can harmonize with me. And on one hand, we might add and become a sound greater than our parts or we can subtract to each other and be destructive but that there's this beautiful mathematical um sonic uh identity of a soul mm. and it is so much more than just what my brain is saying or my internal monologue it is everything we've been everything we are and everything we're going to be have you ever felt anything like this 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I've, I've synced up. I always, I always use phrases like that. I've harmonically synced up with a few people <laughs> in short-term and long-term things. Sometimes the person Was it Mozart or was it Justin Bieber? Oh, uh, you <laughs> see, that's the thing. It's like sometimes you want Justin Bieber for yeah, a night and then... Bieber. Right, and then you want Mozart for, your, you know, your 30s to your 70s. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm looking for Mozart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think most people. I think it's funny. You are. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> right, because it's, it's funny because it's like as much as we can try to understand our own, the own myth and nature of who we are, it's also our our seeking a partner is a reflection of that too. We're trying to reconstruct what is it about them that makes them so harmonic to us. Mm. I think that's dating. For me, that's dating. Well, I also I, sorry, and I'm, I'm, I think you're looking for Mozart as well. <laughs> Just to throw. Aren't out. we all looking for Mozart? <laughs> yeah, we're all looking um, for Mozart in the end. Yes. But I do think though that some people, uh, I like. I always use the the Notebook movie situation of um, where Noah. There's the two guys, so Noah, you know, Ryan Gosling, and the other guy who was <laughs> lovely and beautiful and smart and very He's a catch. He, a he was a total catch. catch. And I've always felt like the relationship with Noah um, was so up and down and so dramatic and they fought, which made them love each other even more. Like, they loved that. that it was dramatic. Right. But they liked that, where I'm like, for me, um, I don't... I don't like conflict. I the, the thought of just having an argument to like let it all out and you know, the, which some people love. I no thank you. Um, so I do think that there's that some people would probably be more looking for that intense wave that would like that just would destructive and, destructive. and oh, constructive. Know, yeah. Yeah, and I don't even necessarily like we could choose positive words that like make it vibrate or like um you know or, yeah you know or attenuate yeah um <laughs> and then where i think you know depending on other people's personality they're like more like you know just ride with it as right. well right because i think something that occurred to me when i was younger my sister was dating this marvelous gentleman and she, you know one of the big reasons why i asked like you know I, you know i talk to my sister about relationship advice all the time and I asked her, like, why didn't that work out? You guys had such something so beautiful together. And she was like, when he was at his lowest, there's nothing I can do to help him. Mm. And there's and and we would be in so much pain together. You know, talk about codependency all the time, especially nowadays. I feel like codependency is becoming has become like a big part of the conversation about dating, because to love someone so deeply is also to become dependent on them almost like a drug i mean love is a drug right Right. so i also think that's about our lifestyle as well like a lot of us are living away from family so we used to have a stronger unit around us and we didn't rely so much on our partner to offer us everything yeah well now love now is not just somebody for a romantic relationship love now is you're my best friend you're my confidant you're my mentor you're my this accountant like you're literally fucking everything for me yeah personally it's too many job descriptions i cannot keep up well it's funny i always tell people that we're the generation that fell in love with disney movies you know what i mean like we got all the disney issues star wars like our pop culture understanding of right we're all looking for prince charming who is also (laughs) mozart who is also a fantastic fiduciary advisor um and the truth is, it's like human beings are so much more complex than that. And, yeah. you know, I was always telling people, it's sometimes you find the right person just at the wrong time, right? You always hear that adage. I truly believe in that. I truly believe that that the sink of your wave is changing over time. But, you know, and I yeah. think that that's where that idea comes with. I've definitely had that little sentence sometimes where like, yeah, you would be the one that people would marry. Or you would be the, you would be the good girlfriend. And 
and but that's not what you're necessarily looking for yeah, at 23. Absolutely. You're like, absolutely. that's actually scary. It was really, it's really crazy because I, I <laughs> okay, so my perspective as a transgender, pansexual, Taiwanese American sound editor. Um, <laughs> it, I went on a date with a straight guy for the first time like three or four Fridays ago. I've wow. mostly dated women my entire life. Um, and um, where did this was this something you were seeking out or more you just found someone attractive or maybe you're going to tell us as you continue to talk I don't you know it's funny because it was like it's like someone who I always knew I really got along with and I never found him particularly attractive in, like sexually until recently um, I don't want to disclose too much in case they listen to this but the interesting thing about that was like realizing as I'm going through this state that this wasn't someone I just wanted to hook up with and then go Mm-hmm. You know, right? Like, oh shit, this is somebody you want to take your time with, someone you want to cultivate a friendship with, and maybe get in a romantic relationship with. Just maybe. I, I think the other thing to think about also is the fact that um, in my looking at the sides, both sides of the gender equation of dating, is that the intimacy between the intimacy between people is so much different from the female perspective. Um, guy best friends and girl best friends do things completely differently. Girl best friends, you're able to talk about really intimate, heavy shit that you would not expect um, or guy friends do not expect. Hence why we have this discrepancy between like friend zone, which I don't believe in, um, and a bunch of other crazy stuff. Like, like that shapes the discourse is that I get a sense that typically women are more, um, emotionally aware and intimate and able to engage on a deeper discourse or on a deeper discourse. Whereas men, they're so used to their emotional well being not necessarily having that. And so when I'm on the date with this guy, I was sitting there being like, I don't know where he stands on all this. Like, I don't know if he understands that I've like, been shooting him looks the whole night. I don't know if he understands that, like, no, I'm co- coming into this with the conceit of it being a date, you know? Um, I just can't tell. Obviously, they're very subtle cues yeah. to me that made me realize, okay, well, this guy just wants to cultivate a deep friendship first before he catches feelings. He doesn't want to just have a quick, like, quick lay. You know what I mean? Like, this is not going to end, at least the way I wanted. Um, but it was interesting to... Um, to see that and then compare that to some of the dating that I've been on with people who are gender non-conforming or trans, you know, where, where if the communication and the trust is there, let's just make out whatever. It's all good. It's all gravy. It's like in Central Park in front of like countless, you know, kids with strollers. Um, but anyways, like, like there's, there's, a, there's a change to that. And it's really tough to navigate, honestly, as someone who's, who's so fluid and everything I, and how I represent myself and the people I choose to date. Whereas, like, if, you know, if I was, like, if I was just, if only I was just a cisgender heterosexual woman, you know what I mean? Where it's, like, oh, it's, like, clear-cut, the coding's there, the implications and the moves are all understood, you know? So that's kind of, that's kind of the revelatory moment for me. Yeah. I have to, um, I put this all together a little while ago, um, but I, and I went on three dates with a woman and I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. It was a girl, it was when I was studying at FIT and um, we did a project together mm-hmm. and she was really quiet and she was sort of seemed like a, she didn't really like anyone. And then when she was, she sort of said, you know, can I have your number? Maybe we should catch up. I was so flattered because I was like, oh my gosh, she liked one of us. Like I really thought, <laughs> you know, like it was a kind oh, of she a, wants, she's opening up. Yeah, it was yeah. really nice. And you know, that's how that's I've lovely. started everything friendship with a woman um, right, right. or a man or whatever and so then we we went and I was like oh cool let's go I think she was into photography so we went to ICP and saw a photography exhibit and then she's 
then I was like, okay, well, you know, I had a plan afterwards, so I was like, oh, it was lovely. <laughs> right, right. And I remember her being a bit shocked that it sort of just, like, ended like that. It's, now I can look back and see it, but, like, yeah. at the time, I was like, you know. She also wasn't um, <laughs> a huge conversationalist, so it was a lot. I, I, I'm an overcompensator if someone's not talking so much, so I'm, like, trying, trying. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I was a little, always a little exhausted. And then she reached out again, and we met up at... um in Queens because I said when we were chatting I was like Queens is like a place I don't really know that as well living in Brooklyn and she's like you know you'll like it so we went and you know and there's other like I think back now and we went and had we're supposed to eat but she ordered just dessert which I feel like is such a little date female thing to do that right. I, I was like okay I'm gonna get the meat <laughs> <laughs> like slow piecing together yeah. yeah but I still I was still completely off but now yeah. I look back and then we went and had a drink and still, like, I remember just leaving going, like, I'm not sure why I'm, I'm not really feeling a friendship here. Um, <laughs> it's not really It was a, just, like, a lot of work, uh, but, you know, just still, and then I saw her at school again, maybe, like, a month later, I was like, hey, and she sort of was, like, a bit annoyed with me. She's like, I haven't heard from you in a while. I was like, oh, sorry, and, you know, and then finally we sort of ended up meeting up one more time, and I was so not... You know, it just wasn't that I did, doesn't really need did this friendship. So I ended up running there because I thought I was like, oh, well, I'll throw an exercise <laughs> to like make it kind of worth it. Um, and then we ended up being in this sort of awkward moment of, of I had just put my card down to split it. But she didn't put hers down. <laughs> so I ended up paying for it, which is like, again, a daily, I guess, thing to do. And so then, like, flash, fast forward, like, a month later, she came up to me and basically was like, you know, I thought, I thought you liked me. And I remember I was doing homework outside at FIT and I was like, um, well, I, and, and I was like, I'm, I'm actually, I don't understand. Um, I was and it finally, she I can't remember the exact word, and she said something, and it clicked. It clicked in my mind, and it clicked in her mind. And I was really grateful, actually, for just the, how I reacted to purely show her that I didn't, I really didn't know what was going on. So yeah. she could, you know, because when I look back, I was like, oh, my God, I, I was like the jock asshole that, like, <laughs> led this thing on the whole time. Yeah, and did, like, And also, talk about confidence. I just rocked up, <laughs> chatted. <laughs> Right. Said bye. You know, which I'm guessing probably would have been intriguing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, but talk about just not under like being so unaware of social cues. She yeah. must have been sending me. I mean, yeah, there was uh, obviously there was you signs look back the whole at it time. now, and now it's all and the I, cues. I seem had to no idea. Place, but... I honestly had absolutely. Like, no I am the same way. In retrospect, looking over my conversations with people, I'm like, oh shit, this person actually like likes me, likes me. You know, I think a lot of it gets muddied because on one hand, uh, I know this might be, I don't want to say a playbook or anything. I don't like using sports terms when it comes to dating, but one of the big things I've noticed is this, there's some folks who use plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Right, where they they're, they're not possible deniability. What it's usually that? so usually here in political speak. Basically, what it means is that um, you reserve the right at any time to retroactively deny, um, plausibly deny. It's, it's sort of the idea of don't, I, like I know you're going to do something bad. Don't tell me what it is. Oh, so this right. way I don't have to worry oh, about right. having so, to. Right. Yeah. So okay. Exactly. So what I've noticed is that um, 
in when the you, films, they're like, stop talking, stop yes, talking yes, now. Stop yeah, talking yeah. Now. yeah. Or, or in the instance of the differentiation between hanging out and dating, mm-hmm. right? Um, I love hanging out with my friends and I love hanging out with people I've never met before. I love it. Obviously, it's kind of what we're doing right now. But, um, you know, it's weird. You go, you, you meet somebody interesting, you, you exchange numbers and you're like, I would love to hang out. Big discrepancy there. Yeah. You know, some people for them hanging out is is synonymous with a date. For me, I'm the belief that unless you state explicitly that it's a date, it does not count as a hang. Yeah. Um, and I I need that because as I've I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I've gone on date I've gone on dates without realizing there were dates. Yeah. I've gone on hangs and they turn out to be a date. And at the same time, I've offered to hang out with somebody and they're like, like we're not. On a date. On right? a date. I'm like, yeah, no, no, we're just hanging out. You know, so it's like really tough. And at the same time, I've met people where they don't want to label it anything, partially because they don't want to label it anything. They want to go out and then they think you're someone they want to retain as a friend. They'll keep it that way. Or there's someone that's a friend who will eventually transition to being someone you want to date. They'll do it that way too. But by not giving it a label, they reserve the right retroactively to call it whatever they want to call it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think it's funny because it creates a lot of confusion in the culture, yeah. right? Because on one hand, I think what it is is transparency. Something about rom- romance hinges on mystery, mm-hmm. right? It, just straight up. Like romance hinges on the mystery of will they or won't they? And so um, what are their, like not to say like what are their intentions, but you know, uh, obviously a romantic date between people who've been together for a really long time versus a romantic date with someone you've never met. They're very different things. And um, just, it, it's just really fascinating to me that there are people out there now who, who they want their flexibility, they want their options. And the discourse has changed now where we're trying to see dating as more of this friendly, gentle thing that you ease some people into. There are different types of daters. I have a friend from high school who's just hardcore, you know, dater, like the most like, you know, you know, he, you know, had a hard time growing up. And now that he's like a really confident, successful dude, he's going to use the the app that was almost catered designed for someone like him to just go out there and meet wonderful women. Um, and so on and so forth. Like he's a chronic dater and it's weird cause I talked to him and he's like, yeah, I don't have to differentiate between the two cause it's explicitly with the platform yeah. I'm using with how I'm meeting these people. It's, it's very explicit. Yeah. And, um, I think that's the thing. Everyone's communicating in different languages now. Right. It's like, it's, it's like if everyone sp- like, it's like if everyone had their, like, I don't know, it's like really hard to describe, but... Well, I think Justin <coughs> really sums it up when, in that song of What Do You Mean? Oh, I thought you were saying baby. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> going to say baby. Can you pass the water? Um, Thank you. I actually, did, like, mean it half as joke and half not, but I'm like, sometimes, like, yeah, what do you mean? What, I, it, it's, it's tricky. It is tricky. Yeah, and at the same time, it's, it's, things are changing. Right. So if you're like, oh, I want to cultivate a friend. And then like five years later, you're like, oh, I'm actually in love with this person on a deeper level. It's like, well, in five years, the date, the discourse dating will have changed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So um, it's just really tough because it's like, for me, I staunchly believe you should be friends with everyone you date. Like if you can't exist on a friendly level. Well, also, I also exist with the conceit that there is no such there's no real thing as a short term relationship. Even sh- I've noticed even the short term relationships I've been in and. I've met people in, there is the conceit that it might be a long-term. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's imp- which, which brings the pain of that it could have been a long-term if it ends. Right. It is the most interesting thing because, we, like I said, only in retrospect and in hindsight do we define these labels, short-term, long-term. Yeah. 
interested in short-term, long-term. Well, even the people I've met who are interested in short have the flexibility and notion of, well, we can keep this longer. I'm just moving to Philadelphia, you know, and I don't want to have any attachment. I'm like, someone, someone says, so I went, once went on a totally lovely date with this, this girl who was applying for medical school and she was probably going to go to Drexel and she was taking her gap year and she was moving to Drexel in like two months. And I'm talking to her and I'm just like, what's the point of this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like by declaring from the outright out from the beginning that, Oh, this is only going to last so long. I'm like, yeah, but the human heart doesn't work that way. Once again, where it's like the transparency of it detracts from the romantic nature of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's just a really tough thing. Cause that's when boundaries get crossed. That's when, um, a bad date becomes assault. That's when that's all these things. Mm-hmm. It's also people, um, you know, in denial about what they feel or not necessarily even being aware of what's going on. You know, I've certainly had my fair share of hangouts that were actually dates that I didn't even realize. I've had my fair share of, uh, like, okay, so I like to go back to this notion of me going on a date with this straight guy for the yeah. first time. I remember as I was sitting there, I didn't want him to, and this is a transgender issue, I didn't want him to perceive me as just another bro. Okay who happens to use female pronouns, you know, I, I know it's not explicitly a bad thing, but it just, it happens. You know, when I am, the way I'm, the way I would like to be perceived and the way I am perceived in the world are very different. And they change day to day, event to event, moment to moment. You know, I can go to a subway, I once went to a subway sandwich shop and when they first asked me for my order, and I usually when I talk to service industry people, I try to present as feminine as possible. So there's no uh, what do you call it? Um, confusion. Are you presenting as anything right now? Oh, I consider myself very much transgender and a woman. But the way no, people... No, but I'm saying like your voice and right oh, now. Oh, right now, as I, this is my default. This okay. is like how I normally am. Okay. But when I talk to people who I haven't met before, people I'm not comfortable with, I don't know, if you can probably rewind this podcast and listen to how I talked beginning of this and how I'm talking to you right now. I'm sure my voice has dropped from the beginning to now because I feel more comfortable talking to you without worrying about how I'm curated. But I went to a subway once... And I got there and I, in a very, like, very femme presenting voice, I was like, um, can I get the oven roasted chicken breast on like a a whole wheat bread, bread, uh, six inch or foot long? I'm like, uh, can I get a foot long and can I also get extra meat and bacon in that? And he's like, yeah. And then as we were going, as we were taking my order from the beginning to the end, he went from using female pronouns for me to male pronouns by the end. Because the context of what I was ordering Changed. Do you changed think he, his perception. Did he... Was that conscious or... No, I think it was completely subconscious. I think... At the time, I wasn't... At the time, I'd just begun my transition, so I still was... I mean, I still consider myself fairly androgynous presenting, but at that time, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's like... It, it, that's just one example. Yeah. You know? So when you went on this date the other day yeah. with a straight guy... Yeah. What did he know of you? Oh, well, he knew... I was going to ask. He, background? He's there? never... He never knew me back when I was my retired self. Um, okay. He's only way, known I, me... I, I think it's a really beautiful word that you say, retired. Because it's... Everyone uses the word dead, and I... Well, I've uh, heard that a lot. I've heard the idea of, like, death and sort of, like, ending that person. Yeah. Or that character and... Yeah, and I... You know, I kind of... I, I understand that perspective. Like, I built an ego. I built a identity that was this person as a way to shield myself from the pain I was feeling having dysphoria. Um, and when that person, you know, I say the greatest thing, I'm going to, I'm going to use my dead name. I just use quote marks also, um, is, uh, you know, the best thing Jonathan Fang ever did as an entity was that he 
he gave me the opportunity to become who I am now. Right. So it's like that. I've always been Joanna Fang. I've always been myself from the get go, but in the construction of the myth of who I was to protect myself, I created this almost this alter ego that I, that I was. So I get why people say dead because I get why people have this explicit notion of like, well, that was an old me that society cannot see as surviving into the new me. At the same time, because I'm someone who's very consciously aware of the male privilege I was granted in those years, I refuse politically to wash that away. I know there are a lot of trans women who will say that, well, no, those privileges were given to us without our consent and that they were not privileges, they were, it was oppressive to, to be put that way. And I always counter, yeah, it changes for everybody. But for me, all I know is that every Chinese New Year, my father would sneak me an extra hundred dollars because at the time I was his firstborn son. Yeah. And that when I was in math classes or in music classes or in film classes, I was never discriminated upon in the subtle ways that women experience. And I was able to build myself up to where I don't have a lot of boundaries that are self-policing boundaries that most assigned female at birth cisgender women have. I was taught never to, to... I was taught never to be diminutive about what I want and, wh- and how I get it. I was told to be proud of what I want and to get it. So I always tell people, I don't use that terminology of dead name because my old self is who I was to an extent and gave me privileges that to this day I benefit from. Part of your sound waves. It's part of my wave. It's who I was. And on one hand, I, you know, I suffered depersonalization. I suffered from a lot of mental health issues when I was younger. Um, and that's a, like a whole nother story. But, you know... I am still who I am, yeah. you know? And so, so on one hand, I respect other people who like to use that terminology, who believe in those ideas. At the same time, I say, well, me personally, I benefited heavily from having been perceived as cis male in an Asian American family. I, there are other privileges I didn't have because I was Asian and not Caucasian. There, there's a whole system of intersectional ways that I had uh, advantages and disadvantages, as people would say. But, you know, I benefited from them. Yeah. So I need to hold myself accountable for them. And so, um, you know, back to this date. back to this date. So he never, he'd never seen me as who I was before. I mean, like, unless he like went through my Facebook photos. Um, he, he met me at a party. Um, yeah, he knew of my, he's friends with me on Facebook. He knew my background as someone who's trans. Um, it was just, it was like I said, social things. Like he and I love the same video games and we like the same music and we like the same films. And we talk about nerdy stuff that I don't think he's ever encountered in other cisgender women because I was I was given I was I had a boyhood I was forced into a boyhood um and so my vocabulary understanding of a lot of those things come from that perspective and so uh this is I'm now I'm linking why you said bro out because in some ways you broed out on yeah common things that you like but that's a that's also like you can yeah. explain it like that, or you can say, we, we just hit it off. Yeah. You know, yeah, see, so we, we hit it off totally, but I didn't wa- I want him to see it as yeah. hit it off and not bro out. out. Yeah, and but so, now I'm understanding why right. you, you said, said 10 that. minutes yeah. ago, yeah. bro out. So, so the whole time, the whole night, right before, leading up to the day, I looked at my best friend, Lauren, and I was like, how do I, I don't want him to perceive me as another bro, and um, I don't know what to do. She was like, you only need to ask yourself, do you, li- do you like him? Is he worth a second date? I'm like, great. Uh, so on one hand, I had that going on in the back of my head, but on the other hand, I was sitting there being like, okay, what, because I've never really been on a heterosexual date from this perspective, I was like, okay, what are the 
gender codes that I might need to express to use to express myself in my what I desire. It's like a from big him. wink. Yeah, <laughs> reach up your skirt, yeah. <laughs> fiddle uh, with your hair endlessly. Yeah. I know. See, that was the funny. So I was thinking about that. By saying, the way, like, I have no idea either. Yeah. No. Right. No. It's a. Con- <laughs> it's a myth. It it's a myth. No, and it so is. I showed up there, and I, you know, I gave him the eyes and like I was definitely like talking as femme as possible like trying to like trying to like set up boundaries so that that way he wouldn't just perceive me as another bro and I you know obviously there's there's pain to that too like it would suck to be to go on this straight date and be perceived as just another man essentially because that's totally degendering to me um at the same time I wanted to be authentic and I wanted to be able to revel in our shared nerddom um and I wasn't raised the way a lot of, I was not raised in this social toxicity a lot of nerd girl gamers did. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I was playing like Call of Duty or like any of those games, yeah. I was never, you know, belittled for being a woman because I never read particularly as a woman on the microphone or on my user profile or anything. So um, it was just really interesting to go through this whole conversation with him and uh, still find myself completely at a loss of words as to like, how did that date go? And I realized it was also because he's not a stereotypical guy. Yeah. Right. Like he's, he's, he's definitely got, he's, he's like a modern 30 something year old who is very conscious of the way he, he talks and, and is not just your run of the mill stereotypical, you know, bro. Mm -hmm. So it was like leaving that date. I was like, at the end of the day, he's like, well, okay, I got to go home. It's really late. And he got in his Uber and I, I got in my car and we, we went separate ways. And he was like, yeah, we should definitely hang out more. It was like a lot of fun. That and I was hang like, out. Yeah. A term. You know? Did, did he pay? Oh, no, we split everything. Okay. No, I, I just sometimes yeah. like there's other, there's things like that sometimes that can, like, not that I think that they have to pay, but it can help maybe understand, oh, understand oh, the situation. I paid, I paid for, I paid for the dinner. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, at the time, he was, he was, you know, we had postponed the date a few times because he felt like he did not, he was like gig going broke, you know, but I was like, no, it's my treat. Let me treat yeah. him. And so I treated him I to dinner. Um, but it was definitely, uh, I don't know how to feel about it because it's like talking to him. I'm like, okay, I want to cultivate this, this, at least this friendship with him. I didn't want to turn him into a rebound. You know, mm-hmm. I just got, you know, not that I've been broken up, but I just went through a fair share of heartbreak recently. So I was like, um, I can't. Woman? Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I can't, I can't just pawn off these things on someone who could potentially be a much better long-term partner. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, it was just so strange. It was like such an intersectionality between all the things that yeah. we're discussing. Nonverbal cues, you know, coded language, um, the myth of a person. You know, it's another funny thing. I feel like people who just know me through Instagram or Facebook think I'm way more femme than I am in person. Right. And like I was saying earlier, on one hand, I see myself very much as transgender and a woman. I like to say, split those things off a little bit. Um, and when I present on Instagram, obviously, you know, I, I just lifted my phone. I just lifted my phone very high in the air at a, at a specific selfie. angle. Selfie angle. Um, you know, I present myself really feminine. At the same time, I present a lot of like... You know, it's like a weird mashup, but I realize now people are watching it, absorbing it, whether they're consciously or not, and creating an idea of who I am. Yes. And so when I, I've been telling a lot of my friends that when I've, I've gone on dates with people, there's a the big problem that I've been noticing in Tinder, and this is for everything and everybody, is that the representation of the person doesn't necessarily match who they are in person. Yeah. And that's not a slight about a person's weight or a person's, you know, height or ethnicity or anything. It's just, it's just what happens when you're trying to catalog a human being to photos and text. You yeah. know, there is this 
Like, even if you meet someone who is like exactly how they look on their photo, exactly the height you expect them to be, talks with exactly the same voice as you thought they would in terms of rhythm, cadence, or whatever, um, just the physical act of them being a real person in front of you destroys yeah, the myth you built, even if they live up to your expectations. Um, and in trans, for trans women, that becomes dangerous, right? Because if I go on a date with a heterosexual guy who assumes that I am like the most feminine butterfly, which I'm clearly not, um, like if they, if they create this idea of who I am and just me being there shatters their expectations of the myth, it could end violently. You know, mm -hmm. like there's been a lot of women who've been like murdered, a lot of trans women who've been murdered, especially women of color. And you read the trans panic defenses, you read what people are saying and a combination of denial or like outright, oh, I didn't know trans panic. I just killed them because I freaked the fuck out. You know, you hear people say that shit. But I was telling my friends, it's not just those people, though. It's not just these homicidal dudes who go out and do that. It's like it even happens when people's intentions are at the best. Right. Where they're like, no, I chose to go on this date with this transgender woman. She is exactly what I'm looking for in a person. I want to see this through. And then before you know it, just something breaks inside the other person and they react violently to it. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I not, like, did I not eat my noodles the right way? Was, it, was I not yeah. feminine enough to so maintain? I never actually thought about how, in some ways, you're constantly defending your femininity. Yeah, and absolutely. Because I, 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 I wouldn't say that um, there's... I think there's definitely been times where I'm like, I, you know, I think maybe even for our generation where, like, even like we have the metrosexual men, <laughs> yeah. in, you know, like where they, guys wear pink now. So it's definitely become a lot more um, fluid, just no matter what your, um, you know, whatever you're interested in. I don't, sex? Sexual what? orientation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Preference. Um, I'm like, now I'm worried about my terminology, but, um, but I've never thought about it on a on a on how you would feel and be like no I in some ways I'm having to prove it yeah all the time and overcompensate for it too yeah because it's funny because what comes naturally and it's all thing I think sorry <laughs> I also think it's a matter of of social stigma too right because for as much as I defend my femininity y'all are doing it every day without realizing Lizing, it doing, that's you what know? i was about to say because i was like now i also sort of can relate <laughs> right exactly exactly because you have to do it every day just either at work or in person or the people you're with like even uh, choosing what length of hair you would like i know it's, it's just little things such that policing. was my favorite online dating um i used to have like a pixie cut yeah and i would constantly get the weirdest things like people would be like oh like interesting haircut choice or I usually don't like short hair on women, but it looks really good on you. Or when, at what point, I had a man ask me once, he's like, did you have like, like a moment where you just like, I need to cut off all my hair. And if you know me, you know, I've never had long hair in my life. Yeah. Like this is pretty like pixie cut was pretty standard for a couple of years. There like was no weird thing. And I'd be like, I don't understand why I have to prove like I'm not a lesbian or I just like my hair short or I'm not like masculine because my hair's short. I don't understand what the weird philosophy is around my haircut or why we're talking about it when I've never even met you. There's <laughs> a whole history of the, of the, of the, of the pixie cut. I mean, when people describe manic pixie dream girl, the pixie part of it is part of the pixie cut. Yeah. And I realized I was reading this great article about surfigats and like, and just fla like, uh, flappers, I believe, yes. yeah. you know, and how, how the pixie cut has always been coded as a, as a, a kind of a referendum to gender norms. Right. Because like women have long hair and guys have short hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's sort of bullshit. Um, and so as a result, it's like, it's like, okay, to be honest, my hair colored the way it is at the length it is was a conscious decision I made to be coded differently. 
Really? So yeah. let's say shoulder length hair, um, <coughs> black on top, and then it goes down to a red, like a red at ombre. the base. Yeah, I have a red, I have a red ombre that um, is fading, but I, I call it a it's red burst. So um, it's so yeah, bright. Yeah, it used to be even darker and bloodier, which I think I'm gonna have it um, get the color maintained on it pretty soon. Um, but you know, for the longest time, I just had like like chest length black hair. And even before I had bangs, I just had chest length black hair. And as even when I was presenting as male, before I came out of the closet, I already had really long hair. It's funny because people perceive me as Native American for a little bit. People, interesting. there's interesting, way, hair has a very unique part of our identity because it's a visual thing and it, it subconsciously or not, it communicates so much to another person. Um, also, it's one of the things that's so easy to change. Yes. You know, uh, I was talking to, my mom was telling me that in Taiwan, one of the old burial traditions is that when someone died, the men in the family weren't allowed to cut their beards until the body was put into the ground. Mm. There was like a mourning period for when you can groom. And in uh, Judaic culture, that exists with the Shiva and the rules yeah. behind that. And so um, I had gotten through this really painful, heartbreaking situation. And I woke up one day and I looked at myself and it was the most stereotypical thing I could do. I was like... I need a change and I need to, I need, it needs to be a change in a positive way that makes me feel better about myself. But also I need it to code to people that I am not your run of the mill Asian. Cause most people see me on the street and they presume I was an Asian mom who didn't speak English. Oh really? They kind of let me get away with the stuff too. Cause I can just oh, walk through. That's why when I walk through typical high street harassment areas in the city, no, you, no one used to give me shit at all because I would just in terms of how I dressed, in terms of how I presented with the long hair and without the bangs, I think people saw me as like, oh, she's just on her way. She's doing business. She has yeah. like, I always joke that I looked like an Asian mom who had two kids at home who were starving and I needed to go to the she grocery store. She was on store. a mission. Yeah, yeah. That's why she's buying so much food. <laughs> I'm just for myself. Um, but, um, so I decided to get the cut cause I like, I want people to code that like I'm different. Um, and I noticed, <laughs> you know, subconsciously or not, I noticed that a lot of trans women I've met have colored dyed hair. So I was like, you know, I want to represent that and I love the color red. I have a guitar that's colored the exact same way, with the black to the red. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, red is definitely my color. And I, when I got the haircut, I was like, this is the most me I've ever been with a haircut. Amazing. It took three hours and yeah. it completely changed how people look at me and how I feel confident presenting myself. So there's a beautiful thing to that that I'm sure the hair podcast yeah. can talk oh, about. 100%. But um, But when it came to gender presentation and dating, it was like... This is really strange because it was like when I had longer black hair, people just assumed I was just very heteronormative. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So having something that's a little more radical like this, people started like, like people always used to think I was much older when I had longer hair and no bangs. So then I got bangs and I was like, oh, you look your age now. And then when I got my hair, like, oh, you really, really look your age. Yeah. And it was like, it was just really funny, but it's, it's. Like this is coding. Yeah. Just like a bandana in the back pocket. Yeah. So, um, so how are you, amazing. what, I think we got to, we're wrapping this up. Um, but with this date, non date, who knows what date are you going to sort of keep pursuing or? I don't know. I've just been, I think I needed to give myself more time to recover from my previous situation before I get myself like, to be honest, I just had the pivot, that pivot moment. I always talk about this with my friends. Everyone, when they get heartbroken or rejected, comes to the same conclusion eventually, which is that I deserve better and that this fantasy was never going to work out, right? Because when a rejection happens before you're dating, it's the fantasy of the future that gets is lost. That, is that before or after you realize your part in why it ended? Um, it was like well after. Okay. I mean, I, I think what it is is that... Um, 
I just, you know, you build your idea of where you wanted that relationship or that romance to go. Yeah. Right. And when it doesn't work out or you get rejected or they don't want to date you or, you know, all that stuff, um, that person, the love you feel for that person and the way you react to a person might change in the slightest ways or in extreme ways. What really dies, no matter what, is the fantasy of being with mm. them. And so I realized my pivot point this time was realizing that like, oh, like I wanted to wake up every day next to this person. Oh, I wanted to cook breakfast with this person every morning. I wanted to like cook them like, you know, eggs over easy with the soy sauce on top. Cause that's what, that's the way that I always felt like I was being loved was through cooking. Taiwanese people are like that. We're foodies. Um, I want to take them to Taiwan and go through street markets and go on these adventures with them. And I realized that, you know, my pivot point this time around was that the loss of the fantasy isn't a loss for me. It's a loss for them. They will never wake up next to me in bed. They will never be served breakfast by me. They will never go to Taiwan with me. They will never do all these things. And like, I came to the conclusion I always fucking come to, which is I deserve better. Everyone comes to that conclusion, but it's just the realization process to that changes for every single relationship because people are unique how you get over them is going to be unique too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my realization only happened like four or five days ago. I've been euphoric ever since, wow. you know, but, um, you know, I just still don't think it's the right time to go on a, on date number two with this guy. At the same time, even if I did, I don't even know if I'd categorize it as a date at that point. Right. Right. So we'll see how it goes. He's certainly, it's funny. Cause it's like, it's so easy to build a discourse about, how oh cisgender I'm using quote marks again cis uh, I'm using quote marks again like cisgender heterosexual men have these like coded structures in terms of how they date when the reality is like I'm talking to this guy and he is full of nuance and different and is is has his own things his own ideas his own resentment his own insecurities and I am not your I'm not even your stereotypical transgender woman either you know like I have passing privilege I'm Asian you know I'm I'm kind of a big girl, you know, like I have all these different things that are part of who I am. Like quite successful, like career driven, you know, all the tens of billions of things that make you, you. Yeah, exactly. And it was just like, I have all these things, he has all these things and it's like, we don't fit neatly in a box. And even he who I thought wouldn't fit neatly, neatly there, he who I thought would fit neatly in a box didn't, Yeah. you know? So despite all the generalizations, it's, it's, it's tough to then come down to, and that's why I love the modern discourse in love. We never talk about what one should do anymore. Old dating stuff was all about advice columns. Mm-hmm. Now yes. it's just about talking about it and, and, and working Welcome things out. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And we're back in where we began. <laughs> the whole thing circles back on itself. It's an Ouroboros. Um, all right. Well, then I maybe that's where we... Yeah, now we just loop that. it. Now yeah. you start looping it and it's another hour of content. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was really lovely talking to you, oh, both thank of you. Thank you so amazing. much for coming on. This is fantastic. Absolutely. I feel like there's a lot for me to think about. <laughs> In a good way. Oh, like, yeah. I, like my brain's ticking. Um, Essie's Hour of Love is produced by Essie Zar, Grace Taylor, and Nancy Pappas. With sound editing and theme music by Jimmy always a special thanks to our guests who are willing to share their intimate stories.